is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Amsterdam. With me is Joël Proust, professor at the École Normale Supérieure and a member of the Jean-Nicot Institute in Paris, and she is here to discuss metacognition. Joël Proust, welcome. Thank you. So the obvious topic to begin with, I think, is what does the term metacognition refer to? Well, metacognition has actually two meanings depending on who is using it. The term as used in psychology means the self-evaluation of one's own dispositions in a given cognitive task. For example, how well do I remember this name? Should I try to retrieve it or should I quit the idea because I don't have it in memory? This is a a self-evaluative capacity. In the other sense of the term, it means a mind-reading ability, the ability to refer to one's own mental states and to describe them, to attribute them to oneself or to others. So there is a distinction in the use of the terms as to whether it's directed to the self, as is the case for metacognition in the psychological sense, or whether it's directed to self or others, as it is the case for mind-reading. And just to clarify, by mind-reading, we don't mean anything like extrasensory perception, but rather this uh, faculty that humans have to recognize, for example, the emotional states of other people. Or, you know, when I look at somebody, just by looking at their face, I can tell whether they're happy or sad, or many things about what they're thinking. Yes, mind-reading is a standard word that has replaced uh, the former term of theory of mind that was previously applied to characterize this ability we have as humans to attribute mental states to others and to ourselves based on mental concepts such as belief, desire, intention. These concepts, of course, need to be mastered and so this capacity doesn't emerge until an age that is approximately five-year-old but still needs to be fine-tuned and appears better in older children. So this ability is currently under investigation with people now finding mind reading present in very young children, like, you know, one year, one year and a half old, seem to be sensitive to what others have seen and what they want. But this is currently much debated because the cues that are involved in recognizing others' intentions and desires might be behavioral and lead the child make behavioral predictions rather than help him to predict mental states or explain others in terms of mental states. So maybe we'll go back to the example you just mentioned, um, trying to remember a word. So I'm describing to you the color of the curtains in the room, and I'm trying to remember the word crimson, and I can't remember it. I'm thinking, ah, what's that word? Uh, it's, it's like red, but it's not red. What, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. What is it? Ah, oh, yes, it's crimson. So at the moment when I'm thinking to myself, ah, what is this word that I can't remember? I'm evaluating 
my own ability to remember things. And that's a paradigm case of metacognition. When you're, when you're assessing how good you are at doing some sort of cognitive activity. Yes, when you conduct a cognitive activity, you need to first know whether you'll be able to conduct it. And when you have finally conducted it, you need to know whether the output is what you were expecting, whether it's the correct one or not. So these are the two steps where metacognition steps in uh, when you try to do things with your mind. So it applies to perception. When you discriminate two things, you must first evaluate whether you can do this, whether there is to you a difference between the, the two items that you need to discriminate. And once you have conducted your discrimination, you must also evaluate whether you are satisfied with your answer. And this applies also to memory, when you try to remember something or when you try to learn something, you also need to know whether the way you are, the time you have spent on an item is sufficient for the goal you have. And so here too, you need to, to select first the material you want to memorize as a function of what you can do. And once you have tried to memorize it, you must evaluate whether in your opinion, you are satisfied with the learning episode you are in. So these are things that we do all the time without thinking about it, uh, but which still reflect the fact that our mind is active in extracting information or in transforming information. For example, in reasoning too, you must be able, when you are faced with a reasoning problem, you must decide whether this problem is something that you can solve and when you have finally reached a solution, if you do, you must decide whether the solution looks correct to you. So these two steps, which I call respectively self-probing and retrospective evaluation, are necessarily present when you perform a cognitive action. And you find when you perform non-cognitive action of the style of a acting on the world, you, you find a similar distinction between two steps, a preparatory step where you need to decide what kind of move you are going to use. Is that physical gesture available to you? In certain cases, you are not sure, you must simulate it in your mind. This is work that has been conducted in neuroscience by Interalia Mark Janero and he could show on fMRI activity that people simulate their action before performing it. And once the action is performed, you need also to evaluate whether the action you've conducted is the one that you intended. Sometimes it's not exactly the one you intended, but is it satisfactory as it is? Similarly, in mental action or in cognitive action, you need first to evaluate whether the action you are going to perform is feasible to you, that is, are you competent enough given the circumstances? And here it's important to underline that circumstances are changing. Your brain may be uh, in a more or less uh, good condition and you feel more or less able to conduct the task. So you need to judge right now whether you can do it, whether you can retrieve the, the name of Crimson, which presently escapes to you. And secondly, once you have retrieved the name, you also must evaluate whether it's the one you intended to retrieve. So I must insist that retrieving the name is only good to you if it's the correct name. So there is no other choice 
when you're performing a cognitive action than to satisfy an epistemic norm, which is often a norm of accuracy, which can be, uh, in other cases, a norm of coherence, a norm of relevance, etc. And these various norms should be satisfied in a way that is strict. That is, you don't have the possibility to tolerate uh, error. Otherwise, it's not the action you were intending to do. You don't want to recuperate a name that is not the correct one. Otherwise, it would not be retrieval from memory. It would be something like maybe imagining or but it's not the, the, the action you are trying to perform. It seems like some of these features you've been describing also apply to things we do that aren't necessarily just mental. So for example, if I try to jump five feet in the air, it seems reasonable to imagine that I might go through this process of simulating the jumping to myself and then evaluating it afterwards and then thinking, okay, did I actually make it five feet in the air? Do all the things we do uh, have this sort of structure, or is there something special about purely, you know, mental activity? Yes, I think it's important to see the difference. When you are conducting a physical action, your goal is instrumental. You need to bring about a change in the world, and you will succeed as far as you have reached that particular goal. So you may need to simulate in non-routine cases where you are not sure you can do it. In, in cognitive action, however, we have new constraints and a new structure. Normally, a cognitive action is not conducted for its own sake. It's conducted within a larger action, which includes an action on the environment. Let me take an example. I'm going to shop, and I've prepared a shopping list, and when I'm in the shop, I discover that I forgot the list at home. So now I have a choice, an instrumental choice. Should I go back home and get the list? Or should I reconstruct the list on the spot? And if you decide on the reconstructing option, then you need to conduct a mental action. And what makes it different from a physical action like simulating your jump is that first, the norm you are going to use is a norm that has to do with your cognitive dispositions in the sense that it has to do with your memory in that particular case or in other mental faculties you have. And what you must evaluate is not a gesture uh, like jumping or a movement. It is something that has no motor aspect but only an aspect having to do with a, an informational property. So it might be recollect, so the list is very interesting because you might try to recollect it accurately with some false alarms, that is, you put in the list more than there was, but you will get all there was in your reconstructed list, or you might opt for a list that does not include false alarms, that is accurate, even though not maybe exhaustive. So there is a trade-off, you must decide whether you are aiming to construct an accurate list or an exhaustive list. And when you think about many of your epistemic decisions, they also involve this kind of task. Should I be accurate or should I be exhaustive? And this is an epistemic decision that can be included, again, in an instrumental decision having more consequences. If you have little money, maybe uh, you are not after exhaustivity but about accuracy, for example. You don't want to shop too much because you have very little money in your pocket. 
So there is no independence between the choice you make for a given cognitive action and your rational instrumental goal in the end. There is an effect. But once you have chosen a given cognitive action, then the norm that is regulating that particular action will have to be used in a strict way. Otherwise, you will fail your cognitive action. So if you meant to be accurate and you are not, you have failed your cognitive action. Or if you meant to be exhaustive and you are not, again, you have failed your particular cognitive action. So I think it's very interesting to see that cognitive actions have a sort of a solidity about them, <laughs> of a kind of absoluteness that you don't find in actions on the world. They need to be correct for you to be able then to act on the world in a responsible way. So you've been interested in a debate between two explanations for this metacognitive faculty, one of which you refer to as the self-attributive view and the other uh, which you call the self-evaluative view. What's the difference between these two approaches to explaining metacognitive activity? Well, in the self-attributive view, the idea is that when you conduct self-evaluation, you need to understand that you have a mental state to begin with that needs to be evaluated. So if you want to evaluate your memory, you need to have the concept of memory. You need to know that, for example, memories can be right or wrong. Otherwise, you would not be able to evaluate yourself as producing a right or wrong memory. In the self-evaluative view, you do not presuppose conceptual knowledge to be able to have this ability. Actually, it may be surprising that you could conduct something like controlling your memory without even knowing that you have a memory, that you, are, you have a lot of other propositional attitudes, and that this memory can be correct or not. I completely recognize that this seems to be a very uh, obscure option. How could you evaluate your own memory without knowing that you have a memory? Actually, the self-evaluative view gained some force, some strength in the domain from the discovery that animals that do not have the ability to refer to their own mental states and that regularly fail the so-called mind-reading tasks, like the false belief task these animals are still able to evaluate their memory. What was disturbing at the beginning of this kind of debate, actually it's very recent, it's uh, the turn of the century, is that children, younger children, were shown not to display a capacity to control their memory until they had a theory of mind. So it seemed to give credence to the fact that actually the self-attributive view was correct. But then animal research showed that monkeys, I don't mean apes, I mean monkeys, dolphins, and now pigeons and rats are also able to evaluate their memory or their perception in order to decide whether they want to do a task that is rewarding or rather do a non-rewarding, a little rewarding, but simpler task. So these animals are able to make this choice in the way humans do. Therefore, we had this theoretical problem of how to explain that these animals can do this without having capacity to attribute to themselves mental concepts or mental dispositions. 
I think the answer, the theoretical answer, lies in the notion of adaptive control. Adaptive control is something that explains how certain forms of feedback can be used by a system to guide their decisions without knowing anything conceptual about the kind of feedback or the kind of activity they are engaging in. Well, this presupposes, however, that these animals have a sensitivity to the kind of feedback that results from their cognitive activity. And it's only evidence that showed us that non-humans could have this kind of sensitivity. Okay, good, right. So the question then is something like, when I'm sitting there frustrated to the fact that I can't remember the word crimson, in order to be able to do that, do I need to have the concept of memory? Do I need to have the concept of a word? I mean, these are pretty basic concepts, but nonetheless, you know, we're going to ask, is that necessary for being able to think metacognitively? And it seems fairly intuitive to think that the answer to that question is yes. You, you do have to have the concept of memory in order to be able to have thoughts about memories. That seems quite intuitive, and there was some research to bear that out. But then more recent discoveries that perhaps even uh, dolphins and monkeys are able to do this as well, shed some doubt on the hypothesis that you need to have the concept of memory in order to evaluate your memories, precisely because apes and dolphins don't have a language. Um, and if they can't speak a language like English or French or some other language with a concept memory in it, then obviously they don't have the concept memory. Maybe you could tell us a bit about what exactly was it that these uh, monkeys and dolphins were able to do that seemed to suggest that they were evaluating their ability to either remember something or, or do some other kind of cognitive task? Well, the tasks that are offered to non-humans, of course, are non-linguistic. They have to decide what to do among two possibilities. Again, one which is highly rewarding, one which is less rewarding. They have to choose the tasks that they prefer to perform. And this takes quite a long time to train them into the structure of having what is called an opt-out task. So they decline or they accept the task depending on whether they feel they can do it. The task consists normally in discriminating, for example, in the case of dolphins, discriminating sounds, as it's uh, something that is in their repertoire to discriminate sounds, the kind of thing they do normally. And so they are offered those two sorts of sounds and they have to say whether it belongs to category A and to category B. And the sounds will be, of course, varied until they reach a threshold in which it's impossible to detect whether it belongs to A or to B, you know, given that the sounds can be varied continuously between A and B. And what is found is that it's when the sounds reach this threshold that the animals use most a pedal for uncertainty, which means I want to switch to the other task. In the case of macaques, they don't use uh, sounds, they use uh, visual patterns, uh, sets of dots that are either of the dense or of the sparse category. And again, you can introduce continuity in the stimuli, and it's around the threshold that the animals will use the uh, uncertainty pattern. In the case of rats, it's an olfactory stimulus, but it's the same. It's also, again, they have to categorize uh, a given stimulus as belonging to category or B, A or B. Another closely related kind of task is uh, to ask the, the animals to wager 
on the answer they have already given. So they are, this time they give an answer and then they are asked whether they want to build a reward or risk on this answer or prefer again to switch to a new trial. So it's the same idea and must be said that in all these cases the animals present a pattern of sensitivity to uncertainty which is similar to ours. Okay, so that seems like pretty clear evidence to the effect that these animals are evaluating their ability to perform a task if they opt out of the task in order to increase their chances of getting a reward. That definitely seems to be an indication that they're doing that because they're something like doubting their ability to do it. What evidence is there exactly that there's this sort of um, internal feedback mechanism in the animal working to produce this result? Well, first I should mention the authors of these comparative uh, studies that are absolutely terrific and that changed completely our perspective on metacognition. People like David Smith from University of Buffalo of Mike Barron have really contributed highly and, and also Robert Hampton to produce experiments that are more and more controlled, making sure that animals are not using perceptual cues to make an epistemic decision. They are not using behavioral cues either. So what are they using? And the answer comes from neuroscience. Kiani and Shadlen, in a work published in Science, have actually studied monkeys subjected to the opt-out task uh, I was mentioning before. And they were able to have access to the neural states of the animal while it was deciding whether the stimulus was of category A or what category B and when he was deciding not to perform the task. And here we see what the neurons are doing that allow an animal to recognize that it's a task that he will probably be unable to solve. And they show that there is activity in the lateral intraparietal area where neurons respond in more or less intensely, that is there are more or less neurons that are firing together in response to a given perceptual stimulus. And also another dimension is the dynamics of activation. These neurons can be very, very early active and converge to a solution very early too. So it's called the accumulation of evidence paradigm. That is, there is a population of neurons that vote for A, another assembly of neurons that vote for B, and they will differ normally in activity and in onset of activity. And this is a, a model that was first devised by a computer scientist named Vickers. This model accounts for the neural evidence we have. That is, actually the brain uses this accumulation of evidence as the method to form a judgment of confidence about the possible outcome of a perceptual activity like discrimination. And it's been shown that it's the same for memory. So we actually, it's a bit more refined than that. We need two pairs of accumulators, one for the present state and one for the using the stored feedback to compare the present state with. So these two pairs of accumulators allow a subject to come with an educated answer to whether I will be able to achieve this task. So what is interesting here is that we have the neuron activity and we also have another level which is the feeling 
of being able to do the activity. So it seems that the feeling is the conscious correlate of the neural activity that doesn't seem to be uh, accessible as such, you know. But actually, uh, this neural activity correlates with feelings, that is, with the motivation and also with muscular activity. In humans, this activity is present in the facial area, the zygomatic area, and um, the corrugator area. And these two sets of muscles allow you to know whether you are satisfied with your answer or dissatisfied with it. So suppose we've established that this is the way monkeys evaluate their ability to remember things. Does it follow that this is also the way people evaluate their ability to remember things? It may just be that our um, cognitive machinery is set up completely differently. Well, of course, this is a problem that needs to be addressed. I would like to mention first the work of Asher Koryat, who has been working on this notion of uh, meta human metacognition for the last 40 years. And Asher Koryat has shown that in humans, you need to distinguish two kinds of self-evaluations. One that is called experience-based, and one that is called analytic. So it nicely reflects the duality we were talking about. That is, the experience-based one could be what is inherited from our being primates. We are using, as the other primates, these mechanisms about the accumulation of evidence to decide whether something is or is not uh, within our capacities in a given context. So experience-based metacognition is based on feelings and themselves they are based on the neural mechanisms of the accumulator I was talking about. On the other hand, we are humans and we are trained into attributing to ourselves and to others mental states and we acquire a lot of knowledge about our dispositions, our capacities, uh, cognitive capacities, as part of uh, what is called a naive theory about the mind. So we learn, for example, things about how easy it is to learn or difficult it is, what are the good conditions for learning, etc. And we acquire theories that are sometimes correct, sometimes incorrect. For example, we tend to believe that it's better to learn in a quiet room and spend a substantive number of hours to learn and that's the best way of learning. Actually, it's not true. That's a false belief. But people seem to like this idea. You know, it has order about it and uh, it seems that it can be easily uh, applied with children and adolescents and so on. But that's not the way the brain is learning. So this it is interesting, based on, this, on these naive theories, to see when they work and when they, they don't work. They seem not to work in many cases where the ease of processing does not correlate with the epistemic property that you are trying to get. For example, when you have all the time you need to learn, and when you, try, you start learning something, you have an illusion of fluency, that is, the things you have just read are still present in your memory and they are easily accessed right now, so you tend to think that you will remember them easily. So there is this illusion that has been really dis 
explored in detail by people in metacognition that shows that if you want to teach a child to appreciate how he's learning, you should certainly not ask the question right on the premise when he has started learning or just after the episode. You must wait at least a few hours to help him understand that it's after a time that he will know whether he has mastered the material. It's not right now because otherwise there is this illusion of fluency that will override any feeling of having memorized. So these are things that are extremely important in a practical way. You need to understand when you are right in confiding into your sense of ease of processing, as in the case of this perceptual discrimination or memory discrimination, and when you are not. Okay, so it looks like the picture is getting increasingly complicated, and maybe the answer to the question we initially asked, in order to value my ability to remember things, do I need to have the concept of memory? And it seems like the answer to that question is like, well, sometimes I use the concept of memory in being able to do that, and sometimes I don't. And people sort of can, you know, can do it both ways. Do you think that this discovery can help us understand more general problems in philosophy about you know, the nature of the mind or um, the reliability of memory or any other broad philosophical issues? Yes, I think the relevance of this uh, distinction is absolutely uh, major, not only for philosophy, also for educational purposes, but let's stick to philosophy. I think first the notion that we have a non-conceptual access to our mind is something entirely new. There's this notion of qualitative experience that a few people have really discussed in, uh, in interesting ways in the area of consciousness, also have a role to play in epistemology and how it can either facilitate knowledge acquisition or interfere with it in certain cases. This is something that should broaden our epistemological views and maybe also introduce a bit of uh, added difficulty in the subject of internalism versus externalism in epistemology. But I would like also to emphasize something that is brand new and which actually is the new project I will be working on as an ERC a collective project during the five years to come. The idea is that metacognition gives us a lead to understand to which epistemic norms who are sensitive. That is, without asking people to report about their own mental states, because I think that asking verbal reports is biasing subjects into a purely theoretical view about themselves and may mask things they are actually sensitive to, in particular in people who, have not, who are not very conceptually proficient. So what I'm interested in is to try to explore the epistemic norms to which people are sensitive to by just looking at how able they are or unable they are to evaluate or to produce certain forms of epistemic acts and to evaluate them. So this should give us a very brand new way of understanding epistemic norms through actual capacity to be sensitive to that particular norm. So this is how you can renew the field, not only in philosophy, but also in psychology and education, by asking babies, for example, to be sensitive to a norm of fluency, that is ease of processing. This has been already done with a lot of success in children unable to master the kind of false belief task, or even a standard 
control of memory task, but asking them to respond to the same problem as the monkeys have been confronted to, that is, will I do this or will I rather do that? Will I opt out? Will I choose this task? In fact, we see that children are absolutely sensitive to a norm of ease of processing, and they can choose very early on. In fact, I think the most recent work says that 18 months, they are very sensitive to the kind of cognitive tasks they can do or not. So this is an immense new domain of exploration. What are the epistemic norms beyond truth? Of course, truth is the queen of the norms for epistemologists, but there are other norms that are very important in our daily lives, like the ease of processing, I've, I've quoted it before, like coherence, for example, reasoning has to do much more with coherence and relevance than with truth, actually, when you look at things in detail. And so, first to list all these norms to which uh, people are sensitive to, and how are these norms calibrated at all? How can we ameliorate the calibration, which is an educational issue of major relevance? How can we teach children to be sensitive to norms like truth when they are only sensitive to very early norms like fluency or, or to instrumental norms? All these are, I think, issues that should renew our approach to the mind and uh, uh, to education as well. Well, I think you've succeeded in convincing me not to go study in the library anymore. Joël Proust, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago, dot edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion.